It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Hi, this is Nathan. Have you ever wondered what the Old Testament law has to do with New Testament living? Well, in this episode, we are going to be looking at a passage where Paul talks about what Jesus has done with the law. Now, before we jump into today's Daily Thunder, I just want to remind you that we have opened up registration for our summer 2021 five-week program. It begins June 12th, goes through July 17th, and is a great opportunity if you're looking for discipleship and learning how to practically live the Christian life. So if you want to take your faith deeper and actually live out the victorious reality of the Christian life, I would encourage you to check out the information for our five-week discipleship program by going to ellersley.com forward slash daily. Now, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians chapter two, as we look at this concept of what Jesus has done with the law. If you have your Bibles, uh, Ephesians chapter two, we've been walking through Again, a series looking at this idea of the Jews and the Gentiles coming together and being made one body in Christ, which is just incredible. And uh, again, we've been walking through this idea that Jesus is our peace. He doesn't merely give us peace. He is our peace. Uh, And because he is our peace, then our life can experience this overwhelming reality of this immeasurable peace. Again, not because he gives you something, Rather, he is that in our, in our lives. And uh, so what I want to do this morning is look specifically, and I want to start reading in verse 14. I just want to read down through verse uh, 17, just to kind of give some context and some flow. And then I want to look primarily at verses 15 and 16 uh, with you this morning. Uh, Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He writes, For he is our peace, who has made both groups one, And has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances. That in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby slaying the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Uh, a couple sessions ago, we were looking specifically at verse 14 and looking at this idea that, again, Jesus is our peace, which is amazing. And because Jesus is our peace, he has taken these two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, and he's broken down, what Paul says here, the barrier of the dividing wall. And again, we were talking about this idea that wouldn't it be interesting that if in Jesus, he would desire to break down every barrier, every dividing wall in our lives with the people around us, that he has done that with Jesus. In fact, you see that in verse 16, that he's reconciling us unto God through his body, or or sorry, through the cross. But you realize that, that God wants to remove every barrier, every dividing wall that stands between us. Now, Just for clarity's sake, because I didn't say this last time, and I've been pondering it ever since that point. I'm not saying a removal of boundaries, but he does want to remove barriers. 
I still think there's room for healthy boundaries in our lives. And if the boundary of our life is love, you realize, in fact, that the boundary should actually be getting bigger and bigger and sucking people into it. But the dividing walls, the barriers, the, the hostilities, the, you know, the keeping people at an arm's length, that should be removed. I don't know if that makes any sense. So he's not removing boundaries necessarily, but he is removing barriers. Do whatever you want with that. Throw it out if you want. Uh, what, I, what I mentioned last time is I want to look specifically at the boundary or the dividing wall, uh, this, this thing that he's breaking down in this session. And truth be told, I'm a little apprehensive. <laughs> and, and the reason uh, my, for my apprehension is the fact that my fear is that you take the concept and you go crazy. Or you leave here and you go, I cannot believe that Nathan just said that we are just to throw out all this stuff. So don't go crazy with this. Stay biblical. And, and, I'm, and I'm even trying to wrestle through what does this mean practically in my life. But I'm going to bring you in on this, and, and then you can decide what you want to do with all this. But I just want to walk you through the passage, because it's so fascinating to me uh, how I was raised in one sense in the church. This begins to push on it. Okay. <laughs> Some of you are like, uh-oh. So, again, look at verse 15, or look at the end of verse 14. Jesus, because he is our peace, he is breaking down the barrier of the dividing wall by, verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. So there is this enmity that Jesus is getting rid of through his death, through his flesh, through, through the cross, is what it's specifically uh, speaking about. Well, what is it? What, what is causing that enmity? Oh, Paul says, it is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances. So we've already established this, and we've been walking through this over and over and over again. <clears throat> but there was a great hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. It's not that the Jews and the Gentiles disliked each other. They hated each other. In fact, if you weren't here for the sessions, let me just give you the quote, because again, it's one of my favorite quotes. <clears throat> and I'm trying to get it out as many times as possible while I can before we move on to the next section. But listen to this quote. This is what one of the scholars said about the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. He said the Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentiles. They said that the only reason why God created the Gentiles was because they were to be the fuel for the fires of hell. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? And that God loved only Israel and, and all, of, all the nation, of all the nations that he had made. In other words, here are these Jews and here are these Gentiles. And in the mind of the Jews, God has selected us. God has given us the law. God has made us the special people. So what does that say about everybody else? Well, they're there, but why did God make them? Well, something's going to have to fuel hell. So that's why you were created. Congratulations. And because of that, do you recognize, because of that misunderstanding of the, of the choosing of Israel and of the giving of the law and of being God's special people, that's all true. God chose them. God gave them a law. They were his special people. But Genesis chapter 12 tells us the reason they were selected. He looks at Abraham and says, hey, look, through you and these people that I'm going to create through you, they were to be a blessing to the world. 
that they should showcase the reality of who God is. And as such, the people of the world, the Gentiles, should look at what God is doing in the Jews and say, I need what you have. Now, we know there were a few people who snuck in, like Ruth, like Rahab. There, there were a few who did do that. But for the most part, there was this separation between the Jew and the Gentile. And by the time you got to the time of Jesus, this hostility was so intense. And again, a lot of it came because of the law. So God gave the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. God gave the law. The, the law is good. Please nod your heads. Okay. But what the law did was, is it separated out Israel. And then in order for us to understand and a prop, uh, properly live by the law, we had to create other law to tell us how to live the law. And then it came this oral tradition thing. So let me just give you a couple quotes from some of the, from the scholars, which may help us understand this division of the law thing. Because if you don't understand this, our, our passage becomes sort of muddy. Uh, one guy wrote this. He says, certainly the oral law, now again, the oral law is the, the Pharisee, the Sadducee thing of interpreting the law. So here's what the law says. For example, God gave 10 commandments. But then we have 613 oral commandments that tell you how to live that out. So God didn't give you the oral law, but we made the oral law to give definition to how we were to live out the law that God gave us. So we have the law, plus then we added a lot of law to help us keep the law. That's a lot of legalism, <laughs> at least how what began to happen in their lives. But he says the oral law was understood in Judaism as the fence around the law. But even the law provided a fence around Israel. And I love that language because in our passage, he's talking about removing the barrier, removing the fence, removing the wall. So the thing that has always guarded and protected Israel, the law, and then what protected the law? The oral law. That's being removed. Why? Because he's taking the Jews and the Gentiles and he's bringing them together into one body. Don't get angry with me yet. Uh, another scholar said this, the Jews believed that it was only by keeping the Jewish law that an individual was considered good and able to achieve the friendship and fellowship of God. That law had been worked out into thousands and thousands of commandments and decrees. Hands had to be washed in a certain way. Dishes had to be cleaned in a certain way. There was page after page about what we could and could not do on the Sabbath day. Sacrifices had to be offered in connection with, the, with, with every occasion in life. And what, what it's interesting is he's, what he's walking through is this idea that, that, again, God gave this law, and then what do we do? We built upon the law so we understood how to keep the law. And in so doing, we kept everybody out. We were creating division because that's what walls do. In fact, that's what law does. It creates separation. Uh, another scholar said this, that the laws which forbade eating or intermarrying with the Gentiles often led Jews to have contempt for the Gentiles, which could regard Gentiles as less than human. So in response, the Gentiles would often regard Jews with great suspicion, considering them inhospitable and hateful to non-Jews and indulgent in anti-Jewish prejudice. So the Jews hated the Gentiles and said, hey, you're not one of us, get out. And therefore the Gentiles hated the Jews. 
And so you had this huge division going back and forth between the Jews and the Gentiles, the Gentiles and the Jews, and they just did not like each other. But what was the main barrier? Paul says the barrier was the law. So if God is going to bring two groups together, what is he going to have to do? Remove the barrier. Now, you got to realize that when God gave the law, there's three different kinds of law that he gave the Israelites. Uh, He gave ceremonial law, which was all about the ceremonies, the festivals, how to worship, right? What to do down at the temple. There's, There's all that kind of stuff. How to do sacrifices, And there was legitimate laws called the ceremonial laws that the Jews had to keep. There were civil laws. This kind of governed the day-to-day living of the society. For example, uh, how to borrow, how to lend, how to own slaves, how to plow your fields. I mean, there was all these kind of laws that God gave. And then he gave what we call the moral law, like the Ten Commandments, which is a revelation of the very character of God himself. Now, again, the law is not bad. Please understand that. The law is not bad. The law is good. But the law cannot save us. So there's nothing wrong with the law. God gave the law. Praise the Lord for the law. But the law cannot save. I love what Paul says in Galatians 3.24. He says, therefore, the law was our tutor or our schoolmaster or our guardian, depending on your translation. Though what was the law doing? It was a schoolmaster. Well, what is a schoolmaster? What does a tutor do? It points you to something. So the law cannot save you, but it's going to tutor you. What's going to tutor you toward? Oh, Paul says that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So it is not the law that is bringing salvation. It is Christ who brings salvation. So what is the law for then? Oh, the law points you to Jesus. And the law reveals why you need a Savior. Does that make sense? Uh, Romans 7, 7, Paul answers that same question. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he answers his question by saying, (laughs) no. The laugh's not in there, but I'm presuming he was laughing. He says, certainly not. What are you talking about? That is a crazy notion. The law is not sin. He says, on the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would never have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. So what does the law do? It reveals and exposes our need for a savior. It's a tutor. It's a schoolmaster. And that schoolmaster, that tutor is pointing, saying, hey, you need Jesus. Again, salvation does not come by the law. But the law exposes your need for salvation. And it shows you that you need someone greater. So if I can maybe summarize this, it seems like there are two key things of why the law is good. One, the moral law reveals the character of God. When you look at the Ten Commandments, you, you understand that God is revealing his character and who he is. Uh, Why did God say, do not lie? Well, it's a really good way to live in community. (laughs) That's true. Why did God say, do not murder? Because if we're going to live in community, you better not be doing that. Or the community may not be around for very long. Why, Why does God say, do not commit adultery? 
Do you realize the reason he gave the Ten Commandments is not just because it's a good way to live in community. That is true. But more so, it reveals who he is. God says, I'm not a liar. Which means if you are my people, you cannot be liars. Because if you as my people begin to lie, what you're declaring is that your God is a liar. I'm not a liar, so therefore you can't lie. Why can't I murder? Because God says, I'm not a murderer. Why can't I commit adultery? Because God says, I don't commit adultery. So what you begin to see is that in the moral light, it reveals the very life and the character of God himself. But again, the, <clears throat> the second aspect of this is that the law reveals our need for Jesus. Which is why, if you're evangelizing, use the law. I mean, it's actually a great use of the law. And if you need help with that, look at Ray Comfort stuff. Ray Comfort is constantly going up to people saying, hey, do you think you're a good person? Yes, I am. Oh, so if you die, where are you going to go? Of course, I'm going to go to heaven. Well, then let's walk through some law stuff. Because God says, hey, you're going to get in. You've got to keep a law. And if you think you're good, let me expose the fact that you are not good. And of course, he'll go through this stuff like, have you ever told a lie? And how many lies do you need to tell to be a liar? Just one. Right? He begins to go through the law and expose the fact that I'm not as good as I think I am. Now, if he stopped there, there's a sudden, suddenly a problem. Why? Because merely going through the law doesn't bring any life. The law doesn't produce life, folks. All it does is reveals, it threatens us with punishment and death. Do this, you die. We're in trouble. So it exposes the fact that we need a Savior. So again, if you're, if you're evangelizing, use the law. But remember, the law doesn't bring the salvation. The law merely points you to the fact that you need a Savior. His name is Jesus. So the law then is a great preparation to expose a soul for their need for a Savior. So hey, is the law bad? No, it's good and it's still effectual to expose our need for a Savior. Here's the question then. When I come to the Savior, do I still need the law? Does that make any sense? In other words, the law is good. How? Why? Because it reveals the character of God. I get that. That's, that's always good. But the law exposes my need for a Savior. It doesn't save. So once I embrace the Savior, what happens to the law? Don't get angry with me. Some of you are already looking a little ticked off. It's going to be okay. <coughs> Sorry, choking me up already. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> uh, Jesus clarifies that he himself has fulfilled the law. And you don't have to turn here, but Matthew 5.17. Jesus says, Do not think I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He says, I'm not, getting a, I'm not doing away with the law, but I have come to fulfill that law. That word fulfill means to fill up, to fulfill, to complete or finish, or to give the true meaning of. I really love that definition. Do you know what Jesus is doing? He is bringing the reality of the law into existence. He's fulfilling it. He's filling it. He's completing it. He's finishing this thing. Just hold on to that for just one second. Matthew eleven thirteen. 13. 
Jesus is speaking, and he says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. That something radically shifted when John showed up. Well, what shifted? The new covenant was coming into existence. Jesus was coming on the scene, and John was beginning to proclaim the kingdom is at hand. That word until means something was in place until something else replaced it. So here we have the law and the prophets, and they were functioning and doing good until John. Which is really language to say until Jesus shows up. So the moment that John began to proclaim the reality of Jesus, and John as the forerunner is pointing to Jesus, Jesus said, hey, the law and the prophets was, was there. They were, they, they were doing good stuff. But there came a point when this thing, hey, it wasn't that it was bad, but this thing turned a corner and it was replaced by something better. Uh, if you want an illustration of that, uh, when we're little kids, we teach little kids a song. It's a great song, right? Z-Y-X-W-V-U-T-S-R. You didn't learn that way. Sorry, A, B, C, D. That's why most of us learned it, right? And we sing the song, and we give them little blocks, right? We, we give them little blocks, and we play with ABC blocks. You do realize, though, if you're in college and you take your ABC blocks with you to class, and as you're walking down the, the collegiate halls and you're humming the song, you have a problem. <laughs> now, please understand, it's not that the ABCs have gone away. They, they're still functioning in your life but they have been sucked up into something greater. It's called reading, called academics. Now, hey, when you're newborn, I mean, when you're, you know, one, two, three, four years old, hey, playing with ABC blocks and singing a song is cute. And it's proper, and you need to learn. you got to start somewhere. But this thing has been sucked up into a greater reality. First grade is not bad. We all need first grade. You need to learn that one plus one is two or three or something, right? This new math, you know? I mean, you need to learn the basics, right? You need to learn how to read. But first grade has been sucked up into 12th grade. It finds fulfillment. Does that make any sense to you? The law is not bad. But the law is ABC block stuff. It has been sucked up into the greater reality, which is Jesus. Again, it's not that it's bad. It's not that it's gone away. It's just it is being fulfilled. It's being completed in Jesus. Uh, Luke 24, verse 27, <clears throat> Jesus is walking down the road of Emmaus, and, he says, and it says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They hear is Jesus walking back through the law, and the prophet's saying, see that? That's all about me. See that? That's all about me. See that? That's all about me. And it's finding fulfillment and completion in Jesus, a higher law. Jesus, you got to understand this. Jesus is our higher law that he has done away with, as it says in our passage, with the commandments, sorry, the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, that he has done away with this thing, that he has removed the law. It's not that it's gone away. It's not that it's evil, but it's been sucked up into a greater reality. What's the greater reality? Jesus. 
Are you all with me still? <laughs> okay. Let me give you a few verses. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Paul writes that Jesus has forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The law produced legal demands upon our life. You sin, you die. But what was Jesus doing upon the cross? He was abolishing. He was satisfying. He was dealing with the legal requirements. And it says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Uh, Romans 6, verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That yes, the law is good. What does it do? It points you to a Savior. But when you're in the Savior, you don't go put yourself back under the law. Why? Because you're under grace. Uh, years ago when I had my first job, I was working at a Christian bookstore and we used to sell pictures and plaques and all this kind of stuff. And I remember this one lady comes in and goes, do you, do you have a plaque or a picture that says something about, I am not under the law, under grace? I'm like, I don't, I don't know why. And she, as she started talking, what she was saying is, oh, because in Christ I have full freedom. I can do whatever I want and now I can live in sin because I'm no longer under law. And I looked at her and I was like, excuse me, I don't think you understand that passage. She goes, I'm under grace. And the grace of the Lord comes upon me. I can do whatever I want. I'm like, no, you can't. <laughs> I am sorry. You are misunderstanding that passage. I didn't tell her that. But that's, and we didn't have it. So I just sent her away. I just was, no, leave. You know? <laughs> Go read your Bible. You know? Paul even answers that question. He says, we are not under the law. We are under grace. And then he, then he says in the next verse, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. So because you're under grace, it does not give you a license to live in sin. Well, I'm not under law anymore. I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. Well, I'm not under the law. You're right. But that law has been sucked up into a greater reality. You're still under a law. It's called the law of grace. Well, what am I able to do in the law of grace? Well, there's boundaries in the law of grace. Hold on to that one second. I'll come back to it. Uh, Romans 7, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but if you read Romans 7, 1 through 6, it's interesting what Paul is talking about is he's using a marriage metaphor to talk about the law. He says, you have been married to the law. And you realize that unless death comes to one of you, you cannot marry someone else. So you are bound by covenant to a law. Well, how am I going to get out of that? Someone's going to have to die. The law is not going to die, folks. So you're in trouble. So how on earth are you going to get out of the law? Paul says, oh, you die. And that in Jesus, because of his death, when I reckon myself dead indeed to sin because of his death, then I find myself released from the obligations of the law so that I can marry the better man. Who's the better man? Jesus. And it's a fun little metaphor talking about the fact that I'm no longer under the law. I'm actually married to the better man, Jesus. 
I'm now brought in, and now I can have relationship. I'm no longer under this law, the law of of ordinances and covenants and, and commands. I'm under the law of grace. Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You no longer have to go to the law for your righteousness. Why? Because he, Jesus, is our righteousness. Galatians 2.19 For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. Galatians 3.24 and 25 Again, so the law was our guardian or our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we no longer need the guardian or tutor. So hey, once you're in Jesus, what do you do with the law? Don't spurn it. Don't go, we're done with you. But you no longer have to bring yourself back under the law. Why? Because there's a higher law you're under. What's the higher law? Jesus. And that should make sense to you because Jesus was constantly talking about this kind of stuff. In Matthew chapter 5, he gives you a whole series of comparisons. He says, in the old law, you heard it said, do not murder. And we said, fine, I won't do that. But I'll take your picture, put it on the back of my door, and I'll throw darts at it. So I'll think about it all the time, but I won't actually do it. Jesus says, you want the new law is? You can't even hate. That if you're going to be in me, this law, this law of grace, this law of love, the law of Christ says no hate. So do you see that murder, the old, has been sucked up into the new? In other words, if you don't hate, you're not going to murder. Murder is not a problem for you. If you're not hating, Jesus says, hey, do not commit adultery. Fine, I won't do that, but I'll, I'll think about it all the time. Jesus says, you know what the new law is? You can't even lust. This is a harder, higher, more stringent law, folks. If you're going to be in Christ, the law of Christ is actually higher, harder, more impossible. And if anything, the Old Testament proved that no one could live out the old. Not a single person proved this thing out. Everybody failed in the old. And then Jesus has the audacity to come in and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make it harder. It goes from murder to hate, from adultery to lust. He goes from don't swear falsely to let your yes be yes and your no be no. An eye for an eye for a tooth for a tooth. He says, why don't you just turn the other cheek and go the extra mile? Well, I'm going to love my neighbor, but I'm going to hate my enemy. Jesus says, love your enemies. He's constantly making a higher, harder, and more impossible law. So yes, you can claim, I'm no longer under law. I'm under grace. But you know what that means? That it's now more impossible. But you have the grace. And you have the Spirit of God living inside of you now to pull off the impossible standard. So you need to understand then that we are no longer bound to the law. Now, I was looking up a whole bunch of different scholars. Some have argued, well, maybe he's abolished parts of the law. In other words, he's dealt with the ceremonial thing. Praise the Lord. We don't have to kill 
sheep and goats every time we come into church. <laughs> and you're thankful for that. Because that gets expensive and that gets messy. And loud. I'm presuming if you're killing a lot of animals, they start figuring it out and they start crying. If they don't, I'll start screaming on their behalf. You know, so... So, hey, I'm glad we don't have the, hey, the, the, the food, the dietary restrictions are gone, folks. You can eat bacon. Woo-hoo-hoo! Praise the Lord. Please stay seated. Contain your excitement. And if you wanted to, you could eat a bat. I don't know why you'd want to eat one of those, but you could. Because that was under the dietary restrictions. That's been removed in Jesus. That's great news. You can now eat pork and bat. And you're thankful for that. So you realize that, and so again, some scholars say, well, maybe he removed the ceremonial and the civil law kind of stuff. But did he remove the moral law? Did he remove the Ten Commandments kind of stuff? And then I've been, all, the, all these scholars I've been looking at, some have said, well, no. Some said yes. That when you actually look at the passage, Paul makes no distinction. That the way Paul makes it, say, make, makes it sound, it's all, all of the law he's removed. And however you want to argue that, I don't think it actually matters. I think the, the moral law still reveals the character of God. But you realize that has been, either way, that has been sucked up into the new law, which is Jesus. And yes, there are times where Paul keeps going back, for example, in chapter 5, and he talks about, hey, you know the command, honor your father and mother. So Paul still references the moral law. But you've got to recognize that all of this has been sucked up into a greater law. Well, what is the greater law? Jesus. What's the greater law? Grace. What's the greater law? Love. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 8 through 10 says, Owe no one anything except love to each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So do you realize that this new law that we are under is a law of love? It's a law of grace. It is a law of Jesus, who is love and grace. So you got to realize, when we come to our passage, Jesus is breaking down something. What is he breaking down? The law. And if you don't like that language, he sucked up the law into something greater. But he has removed the barriers of the law. Now, now you could say, well, Nathan, doesn't Paul give us commands? Doesn't Jesus give commands for us to do? I mean, Jesus did say, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And I'd say, you're correct. But is it commands in the sense of the old? Or is it commands in the sense of the new? I'd argue it's the new. And perhaps if, if I can say this another way, you realize as Christians, the law is not bad. The law is great, especially for evangelism. Why? Because it shows the need for a Savior. But once you have the Savior, you don't have to go put yourself back under the law. Now, I'm going to step on someone's toes. I'm fairly sure, though, that when we get to heaven, there are not going to be posters of the Ten Commandments all over heaven. Why? 
because it's been removed. What are we going to have posters of? Jesus. What would it actually look like if the law of your life was Jesus? If you have, if you have your Bibles, turn back a couple pages to Galatians chapter 5. It's interesting, in Galatians 5, <clears throat> verse 18, Paul says, if you were led by the Spirit, you were not under the law. And he's talking about the law, all of the law. Hey, if you are filled with the Spirit of God, you don't need the law. Why? Because you have the Spirit. But then isn't it interesting, in verses 19, 20, and 21, he tells you all these things you are not supposed to do. Right? It's, it's the fruit of the flesh. Right? Adultery, sexual immorality, impurity, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, rage, and all that kind of stuff. And you could say, well, he just gave you a whole lot of commands of things not to do. Yeah, you could say it that way. Or you could just say, this is the stuff that doesn't look like Jesus. What has he given you? He's given you a law. The higher law. What does that law look like? It does not look like this stuff. You want to know what the law looks like? Oh, look at verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And there is no law against those things. Do you realize that you can have unlimited joy, unlimited peace, unlimited righteousness in the new law? There is no law against this stuff. You can do as much as you want. Go crazy. Self-control, faithfulness, gentleness, love. Go crazy. Go after all of it. Because there's no law against that stuff. Why? Because that looks like Jesus. They are the fruits of the Spirit. When the life of Jesus lives inside of you, what comes out? His fruit. It's his life. All that is say, what if the boundaries of my life was Jesus? Paul in Philippians 4, 8 says, think on these things. See, what if that was the boundary for my mind? And anything that, that fits within that boundary, it can stay. Anything outside that boundary has to go. Isn't it interesting that sin is more than just a list stuff? Now, we do have lists of sin. For example, the Galatians 5 passage. Now, why are those things in that list? Because the Spirit of God is never going to bring that about in your life. The Spirit is never going to produce adultery in you. Because that's not in Jesus. But you realize there are things that are not on that list that still qualify as sin. When you start getting into motive stuff, you realize preaching is good. But when I preach out of my own self, out of, out of my own wisdom, out of my own arrogance, out of my own, oh, I've got this, I can, I can just do this, you realize preaching for me is sin. Well, preaching is good. It is good. But when I preach out of me, instead of allowing the Spirit of God to do something, that's called sin. Praying is good. Please nod your head. But hey, if we're in a group and we're praying and you only pray because you want to be seen and noticed by others, guess what that was for you? That's sin. Because that's pride. So isn't it interesting that you can create your list and try to do everything on your list and still die and go to hell. Because it's not a list thing. Do you understand that? It's a heart issue. Which means I need Jesus. So what if the law of my life wasn't the law? What if the law of my life was him? 
And anything that looked like him can stay in my life. Anything that doesn't look like him has to leave. And wouldn't it be amazing if my goal in my life is not to create a list of do's and don'ts, what if the goal of my life was to look more like Jesus? Then I wouldn't have to have a list. Now you realize Jesus is interested in life, not legalism. He is life, folks, which means what is he trying to pull you into? Life. But the moment I get fixated on the list stuff, it, it produces legalism. In fact, if you look at the Ephesians 2 passage, Paul is building this thing up so you feel the weightiness of the legalism. He uses three nouns talking about the law. He says the law, the commandments, containing ordinances. What is that? That's heavy. And what did the Jews do? They built legalism. Hey, here's all these Sabbath day rules. Jesus, you weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you. It's a gift. It's not about which rules do I have to keep on the Sabbath day. Rest. See, it's not about the list. And isn't it interesting, the moment I make a list, my focus becomes the list, not Jesus. Which is the problem with legalism. A uh, hundred years ago, there was a great movement. It was called the holiness movement. And hey, people wanted to be holy. We are to be holy as he is holy. The problem was the holiness movement got so fixated on legalism. Well, we want to be holy. What does that mean? So when I was growing up, we had a list. Uh, you know, you couldn't go out to eat on Sundays. You couldn't take a newspaper. You couldn't dance. You couldn't swim with the opposite sex. Guys can't have long hair. Girls can't have short hair. Girls can't wear pants. You can't play with cards. You can't. And we had a list. Presuming if we kept the list, we would be holy. That's not how you become holy. And because we try to keep a list, we miss Jesus. Wouldn't it have been fascinating had we gone after Jesus? We would have been made holy. You just can't help yourself. He is holy. So Jesus is not going to produce legalism. He's going to produce life. Wouldn't it be neat if you could actually have freedom in this whole thing? And this wasn't about a list of do's and don'ts in your life. This is about Jesus. And I'm to look like Jesus. And any time something doesn't look or produce Jesus in my life, it needs to leave. That seems a lot easier to me. And yes, it is an impossible standard. But you have the grace, you have the Spirit of God to live this thing. Now, if I can go one, maybe one step further... Do you realize the problem that the Jews and the Gentiles had was the legalism stuff? It's the do's and don'ts stuff. It's the list. And the moment there's a list, it creates a barrier. That's true with us. The moment I give you a list to do in your life, it's going to create a barrier. Because you can't have relationship and reconciliation with lists. It produces division. So what did Jesus do? He removed all that stuff and he became the law so that these two groups could come together into one body and be reconciled to each other and to God, which is the end of verse 15 and 16. So again, it's not that the law was bad. Please, please understand that. It's not that the law is bad. The law is good. The law reveals the character of God. Hey, the law shows us our need for salvation. But when you have salvation, when you have 
your Savior, you don't have to go put yourself under the law. You need Jesus. And he becomes the new law. That all of this, the old, has been sucked up into the new. So I'm not, I'm not saying throughout the law. I'm not saying that. But I am saying, what if you're in Jesus? And what if he was the focus, not the do's and don'ts? If I'm in Jesus, murder is not going to be an issue in my life. Why? Because he's dealing with hatred. If I'm in Jesus, adultery is not going to be an issue in my life. Why? Because he's dealing with lust. Hey, if I'm in Jesus, hating my enemy is not going to be my issue. Why? Because he's dealing with love. Wouldn't it be interesting if the boundary of my life was actually Jesus? What if the law of my life was actually Jesus? And in Jesus, I had freedom to do whatever I wanted as long as it was in Jesus, the boundaries of Jesus. Well, I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. No, you can't. You can do whatever's inside of Jesus. Whatever's in his boundary. You can think whatever thoughts you want to think as long as it's within the boundary of think on these things in the mind of Jesus. You can eat whatever you want to eat as long as it's in Jesus. Hey, you can go out and have fun as long as it's in the boundary of Jesus. Now, you also realize that Jesus is bringing all of us, he's continually pressing us all up into a higher way of living. Which means he's removing more and more chaff from our life. And the challenge becomes, when God begins to work on an area of my life, I then look at your life and make that a rule in your life. Right? God starts working on, hey, Nathan, where do you find rest? Well, I, I, I go to movies. I go to the television. God goes, I need that area. Because in me is the fullness of joy. In me are pleasures forevermore. In me is the essence of rest. So Nathan, you're going to have to give up entertainment. Why? Because I want to actually give you rest. And then I watch you, I see you watch a movie, and I go, <clears throat> if you're going to be a good Christian, no movies. Do you know what I just did in your life? I created barriers. I created walls. I created hardship. Maybe Jesus hasn't dealt with that area of your life yet. I'm not talking about he has different standards for different people. I'm not saying that. But we're all in a different place in our sanctification process. And the moment I take what God's doing in my life and impose that upon you, it's called legalism. Wouldn't it be interesting if the way I, I acted with the people around me wasn't so much a thing of lists, but my desire was for them to look like Jesus. And the way that I would approach someone is not, well, no cigarettes. No cigarettes. You shouldn't be smoking anyway. But what if my issue actually wasn't the cigarette? What if my issue was you're killing yourself? And my desire for you is that you would actually look like Jesus. So smoke or don't smoke, whatever you want to do. You need Jesus. Because I'm convinced if you get into Jesus, you're not going to smoke anymore. I don't know if that made any sense to you. But what if it was less about creating a wall in your life, regulations in your life? What if it was me wanting you to look more and more like Jesus? Which doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want in Jesus. As long as it's in his boundaries. And again, the reason I'm a whole apprehensive with this thing is you can take this and go crazy with it. 
So just for clarity, I'm not saying you can live in sin. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying he has different standards for us. The standard is Jesus, folks. But there are things that he's working on in my life that's different than what he's working on in your life. Jesus has never dealt with sports in my life. Never once. But I'm not a sports guy. He has had to deal with entertainment stuff. And if you're like, I don't care about entertainment, that's probably not an area he's going to be working on in your life. You may have full freedom to watch Little House on the Prairie. Then watch it. And I love Little House on the Prairie. But if he's working on me in that area, does it make any sense? Jesus has abolished the law, folks. He has sucked it up into himself. He has fulfilled it. And he's actually given us a higher law. What's the law? Himself. So two quick questions. What if Jesus was the rule and the standard by which we live by? What if he actually was the law? What if he was the standard? What if the boundaries of our life was Jesus? And then secondly, what are the law or the rules that we have placed in other people's lives that have only created division rather than reconciliation, peace, and oneness? See, am I more concerned about someone's behavior or actions or am I more concerned with that person themselves? I understand the behavior and the actions come with it. I get it. But so oftentimes, the moment I am more concerned with your behavior and actions than I am about you, then I'm content with you having a facade and faking it. Because as long as you do the behavior, you're fine. But what if I'm actually interested in you and your heart and you actually looking like Jesus? The behaviors will come. But if all I'm doing is focusing on the behaviors of someone and giving them a list of do's and don'ts in the behavior, that's never going to change their heart. So what if I would put less emphasis on the behaviors and press them into Jesus? That's what I'm trying to get at. See, what if Jesus was our standard? What if he was the law that we live by? By the way, that's harder. And the only way you're going to pull that off is when you have him in your life. So as Paul says, he is our peace. And he's removed that dividing wall, which was contained in these commandments and the law of ordinances. Why? Because he wanted to bring these two groups together and bring peace. Peace between them and peace with God. What if you want to do that in your life, with your relationships? Let's pray. Lord, Lord would you somehow sort all of this out? <laughs> in our hearts and our minds. Lord, we understand the law is not bad. The law is good. So Lord, let us not just scoff and throw out the law. Lord, let us realize that like ABC blocks have been sucked up into reading, so too the law has been sucked up into you and you are the fulfillment of it. That the law of my life is actually not a list the law of my life is you. It's grace. It's love. And what if the standard by which I was measuring my life was you? Your life, your mind, your attitude, your heart. 
And anything in my life that didn't measure up to that reality had to leave. Lord, that's going to deal with my motives. That's going to deal with my attitudes. That's going to deal with my emotions. That, Lord, you are more interested in my heart than you are in my external behavior. You're interested in the behavior. I get that. But, Lord, this is not a fake it till you make it and hide the real stuff. This is you want the real stuff. That it's not just, well, I'm not going to murder so, so I somehow appease you. You're actually wanting to deal with the hatred inside my heart. The Lord, you're not just trying to deal with the external, the, the outside of the cup stuff. It's the, if the inside of the cup would be clean, oh, that's going to, the outside will take care of itself. That if you start dealing with hate in my life, Lord, you're going to, I'm not going to murder. So Lord, don't we just, don't, don't give me to the place where I just don't murder. Give me to the place where you're dealing with the frustrations and the, the hatred and the, the inside stuff. So Lord, could you be the law of my life? Could, could you be the standard by which everything in my life is measured against? Not just what people see, but all the stuff they don't see. The reason for why I'm doing things. That, yeah, maybe, maybe I have a great prayer, but if my prayer is done out of pride and arrogance and wanting, wanting to be in the center of the stage, Lord, that has to be dealt with in my heart. So you've got to make me meek and humble. And, and Lord, could I just not press legalism upon the people around me and just give them a list of rules and do's and don'ts just trying to clean up the exterior. Lord, could I actually be concerned about the person's heart, their actual life, their soul? And perhaps rather than giving a list to somebody, what if I had pushed them to you and let you be the standard of their living, that you would begin to change not just the outside stuff, but the inside stuff? And Lord, I, I recognize that I probably did not articulate all this well, but would you bring clarity in our hearts and our lives through your word and this idea that you have removed the barrier, the law, but actually given us a higher, better, greater law, which is you, and then gave us your spirit to fulfill it. Lord, we want you to be our standard. We want you to be our life. Love you, Jesus. We give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.